This is a show about getting spooked for fun, and neither one of the hosts are associated with the attractions discussed in any way. Except for those skeletons in Devin's closet. Some topics may go from ghoulish to ghastly, so viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to The Great American Scream. Oh my god, Adam, we've been defrosted. I, we were in I, I kind of forgot we made this show. <laughs> hey, remember when we did a podcast? Crazy. Welcome uh, back to the Great American Scream. It's been a while. It uh, has been Devin a while. Uh, my name is Adam O'Connell, and I'm not gonna blame you entirely for our absence, Devin, but it's part of it. It is most of it, actually. <laughs> uh set the scene for the people. Uh how much has changed? Uh on my end you're wearing glasses i'm wearing glasses my hair yeah. is shorter i'm yeah. in a different room yeah a different state different and time I went to a rave and i went to a rave last night so it's the a after- lot has changed it's the afternoon over there it is it's 2 p.m for me i hate that. and the wild thing is it's 5 p.m for you i hate that so much and then when we were scheduling this episode for today I said to Devin, do you want to record at four o'clock? And A, it's five o'clock, so it shows you how that went. B, uh, De- Devin went four o'clock your time, and I went into a spiral and realized that now this is my life. This is what we do now, yeah. Um, welcome back from our little hiatus. Uh, Devin got to move to a new state. Thank you for being patient while that happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we appreciate y'all. Um, but we're back with an episode that I've been wanting to do uh, for quite a while now, probably since the beginning of October, uh, and I'm glad that we finally get to do it uh, because I got the idea for this episode while we were at Halloween Horror Nights. Hey, we went to that. <laughs> we did go to that. Now you're over by the other Universal Studios. That's true. It's a much worse Universal Studios. I haven't booked. I got my Dream Key Pass to Ooh. Disneyland, and I haven't reserved my first. No, I. No, I haven't reserved my first trip there but you know what i'm not gonna get uh, a universal, universal annual, pass. annual pass you gotta go though i mean i've been there before oh i've never been it's never been not to good California parks but anyway um so i started thinking about as i am for a majority of the day thinking about the bride of frankenstein house uh, oh okay good 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 <laughs> so i started thinking about that and a how much that house slapped but also like so when people always ask me what my favorite classic monster film is i always tell them it's a tie between dracula and bride of frankenstein you're Um, walking down the street (laughs) in big big new york city the big apple and you have people stop you and they go adam o'connell there you are i've been meaning (laughs) to ask you this question what's your favorite classic horror movie this is a thing that happens to you yes yeah all the time um and i tell them that it's a tie between dracula and bride of frankenstein and the, the the core reasoning uh, behind both of those answers is I am a gay person. Uh, so what yeah. else am I going to pick? Um, but I think if really, if you made me pick one, I would pick Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, that movie is like the definition of a masterpiece for me. And I, I realized I didn't know exactly why, like specifically I enjoyed it so much. Uh, until I started to research the man behind the film uh, his career, the way that he makes movies, and it all kind of began to make sense uh, to me. It was like a magic eye puzzle. Yeah. You started to look past yeah. it, and you just saw James behind uh, yeah. it. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about James Whale, who 
is I think when we talk about like queer people in cinema, his name does not come up very often, which is so change that baby. It's it's so surprising because he is the man that brought us Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein and the Invisible Man. Uh, three out of the however many we count nowadays, uh, Universal Classic Monsters and like the horror 73, movie. 73, yeah. Like the, like the first one. Um, uh, and I also think James Whale is like a perfect example of how horror is best made by and for outsiders and how being against the mainstream makes horror better. Because uh, I think James Whale is a perfect example of that. Um, this episode is essentially going to be a biography of James Whale. And I think it's interesting that so many people have seen Frankenstein, have seen Bride of Frankenstein, but have not heard of james whale before yeah i mean understandably so when you think frankenstein you think mary shelley yeah because but the book. film right but when you think about how frankenstein exists in most people's brains it's the film version of him right and when i think of and even myself when i think about the film the first person i think of is boris karloff uh, who doesn't <laughs> i think of honestly in most times when i am thinking of a person the first person that comes to mind is boris karloff yeah exactly um but even with boris karloff's uh uh contributions to the film um we owe most of what the characterization of this particular frankenstein monster is to james whale um so and again if you haven't heard of him before at least you've heard of his stories director of frankenstein the invisible man bride of frankenstein amongst a lot of other films those are probably his three most notable um, yeah. he is an English director born on uh, July 22nd, ah, 1889. Minus two. <laughs> Dudley, <laughs> Dudley, Worcestershire, England. Um, and he did not finish any schooling. Uh, he dropped out of high school to help his family with, I guess, whatever the equivalent of high school in eight nineteen oh whatever was. Uh, secondary school. Yeah, secondary boarding school too. Um, but he dropped out to help his family pay bills uh, and with his labor, and he worked as a cobbler for some time. Um, Hell yeah. We don't talk about cobblers enough anymore. I think whenever anybody thinks of a cobbler, they think of the hit Adam Sandler film, The Cobbler. Oh, I think of the pie, the dessert food. <laughs> oh, that's fair too. I think it's mostly the Adam Sandler thing that I said. Okay. Uh, but nobody thinks about the fact that we don't have uh, cobblers who make shoes anymore. Like, mm -mm. you don't go down to the town square and see a cobbler. Definitely not. Um, so, James Will... Speak <laughs> more on the thing that I said? I'm sorry, I was sipping water, and I realized the mic was picking it up, so sorry for all that. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> Whale enlisted in the British Army in 1915, uh, right after World War One broke out, uh, not for any particular reason other than he would have been conscripted anyway. So he was like, Fair. might as well just hop in now. Um, but he was actually ends up being it's pretty. Kind of, I've got a joke here. Yeah, go I... ahead. No, go ahead. Go. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, doing poppers, you know? OK, because it's not, you know, you're going to do poppers at some point. <laughs> So you might as well take the initiative and do them yourself. I guess. Rather than, rather than later being conscripted to do pop. I guess. I'm correct, um, I think. <laughs> um, he actually ended up being quite 
uh, passionate about serving after he joined and would go on to make some war films. Uh, but he was taken as a prisoner of war in 1917 and held at a German war camp for a little over a year. And it was actually at this camp that he started to become involved in the arts. Uh, he became nice. very involved as an actor, writer, and producer, and set designer for the amateur theatrical productions that would take place inside <laughs> this camp. And that's a fact that I learned that I realized that I have no idea what goes on at prisoner of war camps. It was a different... Listen, this was before, uh, you know, we had the machine gun and we yeah. had gas. So it was the start of mass war death. But really, bef before 19, before World War II, if you were a prisoner of war, it was like, hey, can you just sit here for a while? We just don't want you like fighting yeah. us. You so just hold those dudes thing. there for a little bit. Put on a play. <laughs> Have some fun. Go ahead. Have fun with it. And then now it's like, we're going to torture you. Yeah. Stinks, man. Or um, isn't what it used to be, is my take. <laughs> um, he was repatriated to England in 1918, and this is where he began his career as a professional actor, uh, and also began pretty much living as a completely openly gay man, which is pretty astounding for the year 1918 in England. Like Good for you. He... Work, bitch. Basically, everybody that knew him in his personal life will be like, he was openly gay in the way that's like, you know, how do I married say something? Married to a that, woman. Like, yeah, he wasn't married to a woman. Um, but like that anybody who knew him was like, yeah, Jimmy's gay. Like, that's just how it is. Um, and he wasn't like going around like telling people just everybody knew. Much, uh, like, much like our friends in high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I was gay. Yeah. But so uh, he was engaged to a woman in 1924, but it broke off. Um, but he never had like a fake marriage. He never like dated for appearances. Um, he that was just like who he was, which is pretty crazy. He was the time. just gay. Yeah. Um, and he became pretty well known for directing a 1929 production of R.C. Sheriff's Journey's End uh, on the West End. Uh, this was a very, very successful play uh, about war that brought him to the attention of a lot of movie producers, just as movies were starting to make the transition from silent films to talkies. Um, and he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just opened my mouth, uh, for a second. Cause we don't talk about, hey, this is a really stupid tangent, but I want yeah. you to come on this journey with okay. me. Whenever people say talkies, it sounds silly, right? Because mm -hmm. like, we don't call them that anymore because we don't have silent films anymore. Mm -hmm. So like, we don't call them talkies. But we do call them movies, as in, as <laughs> in they they're move. things that move. Yeah, like they're little, they're little movies. Like they're just little movie guys. Yeah, which I just, I really like as a thing that we do. No, that is no, funny. Nothing else has like that stupid of a name. Like television is like Latin. Yeah. Like, who cares? Yeah. But it's, movies, baby. <laughs> they because they move. Um, I'd be like calling drawings or comics like stillies, like yeah. they don't move. Well, people called comics what the the funnies. Oh yeah, they, we should go back to fun. naming stuff like that. Yeah, I think that this should be called the listening. Yeah. <laughs> or like podcast. <laughs> it's the podcast is actually we're gonna rename it to yeah. listening and sometimes exhale out of your nosy. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. 
Whale began, be, began working as a dialogue director because, and this is something that I found out while researching, while films were making this transition, there were sometimes two separate directors, one for the silent portions of the film and one for the talking portions because the silent... Ah. The silent film directors did not know how to direct actors with dialogue, so they hired a bunch of like theater directors. Theater directors, who, wow. which is so weird, right? Like a high school production when two people want to be the director and you just make them co-directors and watch exactly. the fire. We had that in high school where the actual director, all he really did was just kind of corral us and give us blocking, and then we had a separate acting coach. Ah, yeah, um, no, directors in high strange. school are more correctional officers, I would yeah. say. Uh, my uh, director didn't screw around with that. She was the director because she was in charge of the program, and that was it. <laughs> she was also the stage manager. She did not let any children have any. Good. It, it was her show. Good. Um. So while working on these films is where he would meet David Lewis, uh, a film producer who would eventually become his longtime romantic partner. Uh, Hell yes. And yeah, and we'll hear a lot about David Lewis later. Um, so he, uh, James Whale, directed a film version of Journey's End, which was released in 1932, critical acclaim. Uh, everybody loved this movie. And uh, almost immediately after, he was signed to a five year contract with Universal Studios in 1931. His first project there was called Waterloo Bridge, uh, which was also based on a play. Uh, it was about and the a Abba song. Yeah, and the F song. <laughs> it was about a chorus girl in World War One London that uh, becomes a sex worker and then leaves her soldier husband to like protect his reputation. And this is where we start to see themes in Wales' work of very tragic like romance, especially with like women at the center of the tragedy, the center of the story. Um, mm. And that Feminism a lot of and gay at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and this movie was also a smash hit. Um, and this was also the time that Whale and Lewis began living together. And like, same thing for David Lewis. Everyone was like, yeah, that's James's husband. Like, what, what's up? Don't We don't. That's just how it is. <laughs> yeah. It's just how it be. Um, so following the success of Waterloo Bridge, Universal uh, Chief uh, Carl Lamel Jr. gave Whale the basically they gave him a list of like 30 properties that Universal Studios owned and was like, make one of these into a movie. Pick one. Which is, I think, how they make Marvel Hell movies. Yeah. That's gotta that, be it. I was it. just about to say, it, it, it's how they make Marvel movies and also Marvel comics. Yeah, just, that's like, gotta be Tana it. Tanahisi Coach showed up and they were like, what do you want to do? And he was like, I'll take Captain America, Black Panther, and yeah. <laughs> the Avengers. Thank you. And um, Will ended up choosing Frankenstein as it was basically the only one that interested him, which is also, I think, pretty gay to go. That's the that's only on interesting talent. That's on having an eye. <laughs> um... And it also, this really puts it in perspective how much less time it took to make movies back then. He signed the contract with Universal, produced Waterloo Bridge, started Frankenstein, and would release Frankenstein all in 1931. How long did it take to make movies? Not not a long time. Not a long time, and the movies weren't long. They were like, they were were 22-minute sitcom episodes. (laughs) And then you left. Um, so we'll talk about Frankenstein now. And of course we were always talking about Frankenstein on the show. Uh, but I don't think we've ever deep dove into the movie like this. We talked about his makeup a lot, but into the actual production of the film, uh, we haven't talked yeah, about it too I mean, much. You did say it. We are always talking about Frankenstein on this show. You can yeah. go to literally any, we, uh, 
episode two, McKamey Manor. You can we mentioned to it, and we're we, actually talking about Frankenstein. We mentioned Frankenstein at least once an episode. Don't check that. Don't go back and listen. In fact, check me on that. It's just right. Um, Specifically, this is a call out to the monster. Do not go back. Um, check us. Yeah, don't check us on that. Um, but so by 1930, Universal Pictures was down 2.2 million in revenue, which is about 36.6 million in 2021 money. Um, but things okay. started to look up when Dracula, uh, which was released in February of 1931, yeah, when Dracula showed <laughs> took up, took over, <laughs> flipped the whole studio around. <laughs> he was a really, you know, he's a harsh. He, he's a bit of a driver like he he really he kind of puts everybody's nose to the grindstone but he gets results yeah <laughs> um so uh dracula was first released in 19, also in 1931 uh it sold 50,000 tickets within 48 hours of opening in new york launching momentum that culminated in seven hundred thousand dollars in profits which was almost half of what they were down last year um, and so Lamel Jr. was immediately like, okay, horror movies, we need to make horror movies. Um, so going back to James Whale picking Frankenstein, the problem was there was already a Frankenstein film in production at Universal Studios, riding quite hot off the tails of Dracula. And the story of this is that the original project was supposed to be directed by Robert Flory, starring Bela Lugosi after Dracula. Uh, Bela Lugosi had campaigned... Okay to play Henry Frankenstein. Bela Lugosi was a very serious actor. He got the part of Dracula because he had played it in the tour of the, uh, of the, of the play. Uh, and he kind would, of a Ben Platt situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so he really wanted to play the, the doctor who in this is named Henry Frankenstein. The names of Henry and Victor are switched in the movies and they are in the books. I don't particularly know why other than maybe yeah. they wanted like, to make the main character be more English sounding, even though his last name is Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. That marketing is really important. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Bella goes, really wanted to play Henry Frankenstein, take on that role, but was expected by the studio to play the monster, to keep his name on the poster. Cause people see it for the monster, not for the doctor. Um, Th some things never change. Yeah. And Lugosi was pretty infuriated by this. Um, because, uh, Robert Flory had totally recharacterized the monster as he was in the books to be this careless, mindless killing machine without any touch of humanity. Um, and Lugosi wasn't vibing with that. Um, there's a quote from him that says something None like, of us are vibing with that. <laughs> there was a, uh, there's a quote from Lugosi that goes something like, I was a respected actor in my home country. I will not be a scarecrow in this one. Um, Yo, and, right? that goes hard, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> um, but so, uh, it's debated on whether or not he left the project or was canned. Um, they are not like there's conflicting stories, but what is at a consensus is that Robert Flory was fired, fired after causing all this hell yeah. and everybody hated his script. Um, which coincidentally was about the same time that whale was like, I want to make that movie. And they were like, great. Come on they were in. Like, bingo. <laughs> yeah. Bingo bango. You're you're in luck. Yeah. That position has recently been vacated. Um, so when Rail took over, he uh, actually it was David Lewis who recommended Boris Karloff, who was a little known actor at the time. Um, and he got actors also from Journey's End, Colin Clive, who ended up playing Henry Frankenstein and Waterloo Bridge, uh Mae Clark, who played the main character in Waterloo Bridge as uh Elizabeth. Uh, 
And Whale cast Clive for his, quote, romantic quality, which makes strong men leave, leave civilization to shoot big game. Fellas. Gay people <laughs> hey, fellas. really know how to turn a phrase. And there's a lot of gay people that worked on this movie. Clive was also uh, gay. Uh, Colin Clive was also gay, uh, but remained closeted was. for his entire he life. He has a romantic quality which makes strong men leave civilization to shoot big game. Fellas. Big game is code for Clive's ass. <laughs> fellas, is it fellas, is it gay to leave civilization to shoot, <laughs> shoot big game? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so Whale's characterization of the monster seems very different from Mary Shelley's original novel. In the original novel, the monster talks. Uh, the monster has very intelligent dialogue. He learns Famously. to speak throughout the course of the novel. Um, but uh, he is si- pretty much silent in uh, the movie. But at their core, uh, they're pretty much the same and represent kind of Whale as well. This like longing for understanding and acceptance. Uh, in a society that does not particularly understand you. Um, and Whale did that. And what was previously thought of unheard of as thought of as unheard of, which is creating a movie monster, a horror movie main character that audiences sympathized with. Like instead of just creating some mindless monster, he was a character. He was a character people were rooting for, even though he was also technically the antagonist. Yeah. And he also, uh, like you literally just said, didn't speak. Speak, you know, like the the strength of of Shelley's writing is that Frankenstein speaks, and it, mm. it creates an empathy in the reader that you're like, oh, this person is a this monster is a person. They're yeah. not a monster. They're fully intelligent. And then for for Whale to do the same thing using the strength of the film medium, the mm-hmm. visuals and the acting and the directing, that's just like, and and that and that's on. <laughs> period that's snatch my wig <laughs> bald um so the the film was released on december 4th 1931 in new york uh it made fifty three thousand dollars in its first week just in new york or just under a million today and would go on eventually to gross 12 million dollars which is 219 Holy million crap. in today money that's so much money for that time period that's gotta be in the top still the top like if not uh, like 25, then definitely 50 yeah, definitely. of all time for uh, like adjusted for inflation. Yeah. And it was a smash hit, both critically and commercially. We've talked on the show before about uh, people's reactions to this film and how they were so genuinely terrified by it um, and how it cemented both Whale and Boris Karloff as these these huge icons. So uh, following the release of Frankenstein, Wales uh, went on to release some non-horror pictures. Uh, the first was The Impatient Maiden uh, in 1932, which was a, like a formulaic romance in which a surgeon wins the love of a secretary. Uh, he was then assigned to direct The Old Dark Horse in 1932, which was like a, a chiller thriller movie about travelers escaping uh, a storm in the spooky mansion that is the title. Uh, and then the next film was The Kiss Before the Mirror in 1933, which is a great name for a movie. Uh, yeah. Critical success, box office failure. Um, yeah. And then likely realizing what he was good at, Whale returned to horror with The Invisible Man in 1933. Uh, Invisible Man, also a universal classic monster, technically an often forgotten one. He's one of the he's like a kind of the the dark horse of the ensemble, um, <laughs> along he's- with like the creature from the Black Lagoon. 
yeah in our band he would play like the melodica but when <laughs> he came on stage people go crazy yeah he's got his fans um the script was approved by H.G. Wells and uh, pretty expertly blended horror with humor, being an early example of the horror comedy genre. And if you ask me, and I know we just had that pretty good Invisible Man movie that came out last year uh, that was serious. But if you ask me, the Invisible Man, as it's presented as a classic monster, is inherently pretty silly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like it's it's ghost. But not a ghost. Yeah, I think know? if you do the Invisible Man, you're gonna you gotta do it funny. He's gotta be silly. You got, uh, um, I mean, it, most <laughs> film concepts would be made ten times better if they just embraced the silliness of their yeah. own conceit. Um. So the uh, Invisible Man broke box office records in several cities across America. Uh, however. Whale's next project would be the one that would go down in history as his best, not only his best film, but one of the best horror films ever made ever. And that is The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, So originally, Whale had not wanted to make a sequel to Frankenstein at all, as he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a horror director. Um, But a sequel started to be put in like concept for Frankenstein almost immediately after the first one came out and they realized how good it was doing. Uh, Like it was still in theaters and they were writing a sequel Um, and the studio basically begged him uh, as Lamel Jr. realized that basically only Whale could direct it and it would be good. Um, And Whale took advantage of that situation, agreeing to direct uh, only if the studio allowed him to make a film called One More River, which was a film that garnered problems in the newly formed Hayes Code due to its sadomasochistic content. So he was like, hey, Hell if you make yeah. let me make this freaky deaky movie, I'll make uh, I'll make your Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> let me be gay and yeah. I shall dance for you. Yeah. Um, but I I that's I shouldn't even say that because the idea for a Frankenstein sequel, it was kind of Whale's idea to make it the Bride of Frankenstein. They just knew they wanted a sequel. They didn't particularly care what it was about. Like they we're like, OK, Duh. we're going to put Frankenstein in other countries. We're going to put him somewhere else. We're going to make another Frankenstein. They fight each other like there were a bunch of pitches. <laughs> we, and <laughs> we do not care. Um, and funnily enough, Robert Flory tried to write a sequel, but he, the, <laughs> the studio rejected it without comment, which is the equivalent of like dunking it into the trash can. <laughs> uh, I would just like to pause the podcast. So Frankenstein, it's or wait, no, we were looking for Dracula. What were you looking for? No, Frankenstein. Frankenstein, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sadly, not in the top 200. Oh, wow. crazy. Young Frankenstein (laughs) is number 139. Good for young Frankenstein. And number 200, liar, liar. Wow. Yeah, good for them. Interesting. Anyway, Um, resume the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, we talked about the production of Bride and Frankenstein a lot in our episode about Jack Pierce and making movie monsters. So I won't talk about that too much, but I do really want to get into the queer reading of this film uh, because it's really the meat of what I want to talk about anyway. Um, Because also beside podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How dare you? Um, Because besides it being just good as hell, that's what this movie is basically known for. Uh, is its queer readings. Uh, And many film critics have argued queer subtext in Wales films, but none really have so much concrete evidence or kind of universal agreement as Bride of Frankenstein. Um, So in his book, The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror, 
author James Skull writes that with Bride of Frankenstein, James Well, quote, instinctively dipped into the feminist subtext of Frankenstein for his sequel decades before any formal feminist inquiry. And we kind of see that, um, that Bride of Frankenstein is technically centered on Mary Shelley. Um, it's, it's told, if you haven't seen Bride of Frankenstein, it's got a meta theatrical frame of uh, Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, like telling scary stories to each other yeah, telling their stories yeah. yeah and she goes on to tell brian frankenstein uh and he goes on uh david skull uh author and film historian who's uh i think related to uh, the other skull james skull we just talked yeah, about yeah sure um the old horror films do have a certain residence for gay people i'm gonna get that embroidered on the back you of my jacket that again <laughs> um <Yeah>. monster no. <laughs> Monster well, movies I, I wanna, are. Oh no! Go go go! You say your thing. Oh yeah yeah. Uh, it it's not really surprising that Whale would dip into the feminist mm-hmm. subtext of Frankenstein when we already see that he was playing with feminist text in stuff like Waterloo Bridge. Yeah, like that's very much not surprising. Exactly. Um, so Davis Gall says the old, hor- old horror films do have a certain resonance for gay people. Monster movies are about sexual repression, among other things. And homosexuality yeah. is one form of sexuality that has traditionally been repressed. Thank you, David. Um, Thank you, David, for for laying it out for everybody. I think we all can agree now that David Skull has said that homosexuality is one form of sexuality that traditionally has been repressed. I think that that's that's pretty good. And I appreciate your saying it out loud. Say it. Say it louder, people in the back. (laughs) Um, So the film is just in general camp uh, and everything about it. But most of the queerness of it is centered around the character Dr. Septimus Pretorius, uh, played by queer actor Ernest Theisger. Theisger? You got it. Theisger? Uh, I just want to, I'm impressed that you got, you got caught up on what I think is Thesiger. Thesiger, but I didn't stutter on but Septimus Pretorius. Not on, yeah, not Septimus Pretorius. You know why? It's because, it's because I played Dungeons the, and Dragons. <laughs> and because it's the gayest name ever yeah and no gay person by decree of god herself can, <laughs> he can mispronounce septimus pretorius um so uh whale had a lot to do with the final script uh especially with pretorius's character who is new is not featured in the novel the the story of bride and frankenstein is kind of based on parts of the book they do make a mate for the monster in the book right. but uh she is never brought to life um because it's one of the monster's things he's like if you make me a mate i will leave you alone um, right. But so <laughs> that's really funny. Very, uh, very <laughs> mystique. Yeah. In the current run of X-Men. Um, so sorry, I've been reading a lot of <laughs> X-Men, Adam. I don't know if you could tell. <laughs> so the relationship between Pretorius and Frankenstein is pretty queer, mostly in Pretorius's part. Pretorius is effectively like an old angry queen for the whole movie. Yeah. Um, and there's even a scene where he interrupts. Henry and Elizabeth on their wedding night, stopping them from having sex in order to coax Henry back to the lab to bring the bride to life. Yes. Um, yes. No and- <laughs> time for sex. We have to go do science yeah. and what could be gayer. Yeah. And like, that's the thing is like most the way that uh, film critics read this, that read it with this, like through this queer lens is that they kind of become these like same sex parents of the bride and in general, in these films and the first one, there's this big theme of like male male procreation and like the rejection of like having sex with women in order to promote male male procreation or at least auto procreation. 
not male male, but just like Mystique and yeah. Destiny <laughs> yeah. in X Men having um, Rogue, but also, but also kind. Of, hey, I hate that. I yeah. think this is the second time I've mentioned the specifics of genre of fiction on this podcast, but very ABO, <laughs> very ABO. Um, it's at least autoerotic, if not homoerotic. Um, and now I should drop those prefixes. It's just erotic. I should. I do have legally. I do have to say that Pretorius is the villain. Ding 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 ding. Ring the bell. Um, yeah, which is pretty expected. Uh, but I it left doesn't the bell in New York. But, <laughs> oh no! But it doesn't make it any less homoerotic just because he's the villain. Hey, just because it's the villain it doesn't it make more. it any less homoerotic. Hey, boosting this for those who don't know, <laughs> and then I'm doing a TikTok dance. You can't see it because it's an audio medium, but I'm pointing to different parts of the screen. Yeah. Just because a gay character is the villain doesn't make it any less homoerotic. <laughs> I would love to post that on TikTok and then not log on to TikTok for three weeks and just let it unfold. <laughs> let so watch, not watch the world burn. Yeah. Um, so uh, 15 minutes of the original ending of this film were cut actually to conform to the Hayes Code, including the reveal of the bride's heart was Elizabeth's. Um, and if this were canon, it would kind of, and it would imply that Frankenstein and Pretorius's mutual goal was uh, like predicated on the destruction of Henry Frankenstein's heterosexual right. relationship. Like Elizabeth had to die in order to create life. And he, he literally sacrifices her for the realization of his other ambitions with involved Pretorius. You must become gay to have a child. It's the rule. Yeah. I, there's nothing, fellas, <laughs> if uh, women like you're 80% water and women are 80% water. So is it not kind of gay to have sex with a woman? <laughs> Fellas. <You know? laughs> um. Fellas. I also like the idea that like, <laughs> I was joking when I said that we have to not have sex instead we have to go do science. Mm -hmm. But if you just replace science with the phrase gay sex, specifically <laughs> procreative gay sex. Yeah. Then now this film is just, I think it's a porno. I think it becomes when you get rid All of the right. science, it does kind of just become yeah. Porn. It does, then it just becomes sex, huh? That's Which interesting. also is kind of what Reanimator is too, because the whole thing with Reanimator is Herbert West is like, not to talk about Reanimator again, but that Herbert West is like, no, Dan, get away from your girlfriend. We need to go reanimate dead bodies. Adam, you cannot stop bringing up Reanimator. No, I can't. It's the rule of the podcast. I'm gonna keep talking about it until they remake it. Starring me as Herbert West. Manifesting. Yes. Um, I will keep talking. I will not be silenced <laughs> until my demands are met. <laughs> Say it louder for the people um, in the back. Anyway, Say what, it. We, what were we talking about? Okay, so um, the monster himself is also kind of heralded as a queer icon uh, as he is judged by society not because of who he is in the inside but because of his outward appearance and who people assume him to be. Um, and that in general, like, it, it just, the whole theme of this movie like it, it carries through this like queer lens uh, besides it just being generally camp and all the stuff about Pretorius. Like it's just gay. And I know that's like a it's cop out explanation. You can't like in like a film critic circle, you can't just say it's just gay, but it is. But you can actually, yeah. I, I reject that idea. It, that's a, that's a hetero <laughs> heterosexual superiority <laughs> idea and I won't stand for it. I, I think that 
uh, you know, if you're not gay, you might not understand this metaphor of being judged by society, not because of what is on the inside, but because of their outward appearance. But for us gay people, the thing is, we're all so incredibly hot and sexy <laughs> on the outside. And so people assume that we must just be hot and sexy and that's yeah. all that there is to us. Yeah. But it turns out if you peel back the layers of any hot and incredibly sexy and sexual uh, gay person, it turns out they're also we're also incredibly smart, uh, powerful. We're very physically strong uh, and also emotionally strong and also monsters. And we're also monsters and we're incredibly intelligent. We're smarter than any straight person. And um, we also uh, can turn into a car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's and isn't fun. that what James Whale would have wanted the world to know anyway? <laughs> Oh, God, uh, James Whale is probably very upset with us. So um, uh, interestingly, most and now I'm about to <laughs> rebuke everything we just said, because interesting, right. interestingly, most who knew Whale well, including David Lewis and his close friend, Curtis Harrington, Curtis Harrington, uh, argued that Whale would never purposefully put queer subjects into his films and that. Uh, Harrington. That's the Tolkien. That's the Tolkien line. Oh, I hate allegory. I never purposefully put it in. Well, yeah, because that's the thing is like, I think it was Harrington that said, like, listen, all art comes from the subconscious anyway. So I'm sure that like that reading comes from the subconscious, but they don't think he did it on like on purpose, capital P on purpose. Yeah, that he, he didn't like I mean, rub his hands the, together and go, I'm going to make this movie gay. <laughs> I'm going to make it gay. The thing is, even he couldn't he could have tried to make it the least gay thing imaginable. And circled the all the way around. Is, Bride of Frankenstein cannot not be gay. We've already established yeah, it this. Is. It could have been made by the straightest director in all of the universe. Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino could have made this film and it still would have been gay. That, wow, wow, that's a statement. But, wait, but Kill Bill is very gay. Okay, okay, I take back. Michael Bay. Oh, Michael Bay. Uh, No, Transformers is very gay, but (laughs) okay. No, okay. Um, So, although Bride was... It, like is heralded as Wales' masterpiece. It wasn't really his swan song or magnum opus as he would continue to make pretty successful films in the coming years. Uh, he actually made the 1936 version of Showboat, which I didn't know. Um, okay. But after that, his career would kind of decline and he ended up retiring from film in 1941. Uh, and his post-film life, he, he fizzled out kind of a little bit. Uh, he would work the occasional jobs, such as filming a U.S. Army training film. He directed a Broadway play that didn't do so hot in 1944, uh, but ended up spending most of his time at home. Uh, Lewis, however, who was a producer, was busier than ever. You know, everybody was making movies. Uh, and Whale, he would leave Whale basically home alone and bored. Um, and this I only put in the outline because it's cute. But Lewis ended up buying him a large supply of paint and canvases and Whale rediscovered his love of painting from his youth. <laughs> Oh, it's really nice. This I don't like how this seems to be predicting the future of Ezra in my life. <laughs> that I retire uh, after like one good thing and then Ezra <laughs> works the rest of his life. Um, and uh, Whale actually ended up. And listen, every time like <laughs> we biographize, is that a word? It's not. But sure. we we these these queer icons and a lot of them, especially men of this era end up falling into this weird pattern of achieving success and either retiring, but falling into either alcoholism, drug abuse, or affairs with people that aren't their partners. 
Uh, yeah. It's so interesting of the era because it's exactly what happened to to James Whale. He ended up opening a play in London called Pagan in the Parlor. Uh, and this it was here where he met 25-year-old bartender Pierre Fogel. Uh, Whale was 62. Get it, Pierre. <laughs> Whale was 62 at the time and totally smitten and hired him as his chauffeur. Uh, Curtis Harrington, though, Whale's friend, thought Fogel out to be a hustler. And just basically okay. like, you know, milking well for his money. Um, this totally reminds me of like Oscar Wilde and uh, yeah. whatever Jude Law's character in that movie is. Um, when he returned to California in November of 1952, he told David Lewis that he planned to bring Fogel over early the following year. Lewis ended their 23 year long relationship and moved out of their home, which breaks my okay, heart. I do want to say it, it. It's it's very sad. However, we're gay people. This happens. Good for the 23, 25-year-old. <laughs> the French bartender. Get it. Um, That's the job of 25-year-old bartenders is to be a homewrecker for well-established, loving gay relationships. They yeah. remain friends. So They were still friends. Um, Whale, it seems, never fully got over that as uh, Lewis ended up buying a small house in Dutch. Uh, digging a swimming pool, prompting Whale to immediately dig a bigger swimming pool, although Hell he did yes. not swim. Uh, and then to like compensate for that, he began throwing these all male swim parties and would watch young man men like swim and dance around in the pool. And like that's what he yes. did for the latter part of his life. It's it is my life. <laughs> this is my future. Um. In, in 1956, he suffered a small stroke and hired one of the male nurses from the hospital he stayed at to be a live-in nurse. Oh, my God. Um, jealous, He's though. He's so powerful. <laughs> I don't know why this is heartbreaking to you at all. This is great. Um, jealous, Fogel fired that nurse and hired <gasps> a female non-live-in nurse. That um, bitch. And <laughs> Whale would suffer the from, movie? from moods. Uh, there is a movie. It's called Gods and Monsters. We're going to get to that. Um, uh, Whale suffered from mood swings and grew increasingly and frustratingly more dependent on others as his mental faculties were diminishing. Even though the stroke was small, it had a huge, huge impact of his life uh, leading up to his death. We're going to talk about right now, just content warning that he did commit suicide. Um, so we're going to really talk about that. Uh, he drowned himself on May 29th, 1957 uh, at the age of 67. The death was initially ruled accidental until his, su his suicide note was found. Uh, which Did said he drown in the swimming pool. Yeah. Uh, which said, oh, <laughs> which said that this man knew what his biography was going to be about. Uh, it said to all I love, do not grieve for me. My nerves are all shot for the last year. I have been in agony day or night, except when I sleep with sleeping pills and any peace I have by day is when I am drugged by pills. I've had a wonderful life, but it is over and my nerves get worse and I'm afraid they will have to take me away. So please forgive me all, uh, all those I love and may God forgive me too, but I cannot bear agony and it is best for everyone this way. The future is just old age and illness and pain. Goodbye. And thank you all for your love i must have peace and this is the only way signed jimmy uh which his death was initially ruled, swimming pool yeah his his death was initially ruled a accident uh until they found that suicide note um and it uh kind of came as not really a shock mostly because he had really left the public eye for for such a long yeah. time um and by the 1950s especially in this big heyday of monster movies alien movies his films were almost forgotten like the yeah. the universal classic monster films didn't kind of reach their second wind almost until like hammer horror films began to remake them and stuff in the 80s and we really harken back but 
he was kind of old news uh, in this. And that's yeah. actually there is a movie about the last few days of his life called Gods and Monsters, which is uh, a line from Bride of Frankenstein. It stars. Are you ready for this? You're not ready for this. Yeah. It stars Ian McKellen as James Whale. And oh my God. And Brendan Fraser as a <laughs> character named Clayton Boone, who is kind of the stand in for Pierre Fogel. Oh my god. Um sort Hell of. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um it is an excellent 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 movie. It's really really good. Uh and it's wow. it's it, it's not a biopic cuz it really only examines the last few days of his life. Um but it is uh it's uh, Brendan Fraser's character is not really a stand-in for Pierre Fogel. He plays like a gardener that he like a hot gardener that James Whale confides in. Um but yeah. it it is a really, really spectacular movie if you're interested to learn more about him. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's really great. Um, and I think he as James Whale as a figure like is not talked about like he should be. I, I think like it really took me to get really into horror before his name even came up for me. Yeah, I, I mean, the the development of film as a culture like we didn't have subculture or cult film culture in a, in a really trackable way until, like you said, the the kind of eighties. Mm-hmm. So you have this idea that once a film leaves public consciousness and like public release, it, it genuinely leaves almost historical record. Yeah. Uh, like other than just like a list of films that came out and, not until you see the branching out of genre fiction in movies and and subculture that's when you start to see the the lauding of creators like James Whale by people not in the mainstream right yeah. like somebody who passes into mainstream consciousness is going to pass out of it but somebody who passes into a subculture consciousness is going to stay there yeah, and, and think about the way that we Will like around for. Yeah, and think about the way we regard his films today. Like he created like Frankenstein set the precedent for everything in monster movies. Absolutely everything. Yeah. And he it wouldn't have if he hadn't been the director. Yeah. I, and it's <laughs> of like of course he was also gay and had a crazy life story mm-hmm. and was incredibly thoughtful and doing it like artistic work before certain schools of thought started to think about them. Yeah. Like, Duh. I like, guess my thesis is like watch Bride of Frankenstein if you just think it's like a weird sequel. It's not. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, duh. I think it's better yeah. than the regular Frankenstein. Wow. Uh, I guess that's Feminism. the thesis of this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just man, I like this guy. I love this guy. Uh, I think that we should make a full biopic for him. Same. Um. I would like to play Fogel. Thank you. Next. <laughs> also, so okay. Oh, wait, 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 oh. wait, 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 wait. Dream blunt rotation. James Whale, Clive Barker, Mark Patton. Us. Us. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Of us that was it. Smokers. But <laughs> that was it. That was it. This will make an exception. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode 77 Ooh. of the Great American Scream. If you enjoyed, please leave a rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. There's also a nifty little share button there that you can share the show on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. <laughs> and <laughs> we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Uh We have tons of cool stuff there. 
Adam, can you pimp our social medias, please? Yes, you can check us out on Facebook at The Great American Scream or much more frequently on Twitter and Instagram at Great Scream Pod. Um, please, at any hour of the day, you may tweet me about Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, if you can post or tweet at us using the hashtag TGAS. And as always, if you have a suggestion for a future episode, something you want us to talk about, uh, tweet at us or make a post because your suggestion may become the topic for a future episode. And also we have a holiday special coming at you next week. Uh, so be ready for that. Uh, I know we're already back and we're already doing a holiday special. Nuts. Uh, we also just yeah. got our Spotify wrapped for the year back. So I just wanted to say again, thank you so much. Everybody who tuned in and listened this year. Uh, we had people from so many different countries listening in this year, which is insane. Absolutely uh, insane. We are so thankful for y'all. Uh, we wouldn't keep making the show if it weren't for uh, all y'all who listen. So thank you so much. Thank you. Especially... A super special thank you goes out to Michael Segudo, who did, does the intro disclaimer, and Stevie Viola, who does the intro and outro music. We would also like to thank, at this time, our patrons on the level of Man in the Fields or higher. Once my Google <laughs> Google Chrome Opera GX Gamer browser decides to load. <laughs> uh, so that's going to take a sec. I know some of you, but the scary thing is that maybe I would uh, forget some of you, and that would be absolutely that terrifying be oh my god i have to log into my nyu email to get a login thing please just let me in please god okay. wait, wait wait you want me to do it no i got it I got okay it, i got it uh thank you to regina ben gail joyce melinda and chris i've been Devin Wright. i've been adam o'connell and hopefully you have been spooked i don't, I don't know i can't think of anything hi, hi james whale hi, hi. <laughs> Thank you. That's on. Being that's on. A that's on talent, baby. That's. <laughs> <laughs>